With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So today, April and I wanted to start with a little bit of listener mail. You guys write to us, you email us, you direct message us, and we really love hearing from you guys. So Edie wrote to us on Instagram and she wrote to us about our recent episode on the history of stoutware. And she wrote, thanks again for making such a great podcast and for making Tuesday my favorite day of the week. This week's episode blew the lid off of my body image. The moment the connection between the corset and quote unquote tight bodies being ideal bodies was linked. I thought, why do I want to hold myself up to beauty standards created in an era where women were treated like property with no rights? And the answer is short and simple. I don't. Goodbye limiting self-belief, negative thoughts about my jiggles and shakes. I never linked the corset to the idea that my jiggles are bad. It was such an aha moment for me. Thank you so much. Aww. Thank you, Edie, for writing. Yeah, that's such a sweet message. And it's so nice to hear that, like, things that we do and things that we write, it, it actually sometimes makes a difference. So I got a little teary-eyed, I will admit, when I read your message. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and like she said, it's just such an important connection to make that there's all these societally imposed body ideals that so many of us live with. So um, let's battle them and get rid of them. <laughs> yep. And, and and it's a constantly moving target. It's never the same. You know, it, it's it's a constantly evolving idea of what the ideal body is. Exactly. So lesson is be yourself, April, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so today we are answering a listener question from Danny Labadier, who wanted to know all about the history of Mary Jane's shoes, which I thought was an incredibly fascinating topic. I love doing origin story um, research and kind of discovering when names specifically were first used in reference to garments and how that evolved. So she wanted to know why Mary Janes were called that, how they've been in and out of style for more than a century, and how they were brought back to pop culture. So April, this question took us back a bit further than I think we both anticipated. Yes. <laughs> so also for the sake of not doing the entire history of the evolution of the shoe, we are going to start in the 15th century, where a little girl named Mary Jane lived. Just kidding. Uh, she's <laughs> kidding. Although that would be really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 we will say, um, I think even Cass and I were really surprised to learn that the Mary Jane style of shoes, um, and, and by that we mean this closed-toed shoe with either a single buttoned or buckled strap or bar across the top of the foot or where the ankle meets um, the leg. These were actually commonly worn by men in the Middle Ages and especially monks, which I thought was really fascinating. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and they're called monk strap shoes, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, but these were kind of a closed-toe alternative to the other styles that monks are wearing at the time, which were usually a type of buckled sandals. And, and these have a lot of similarities to what we would call a Mary Jane shoe today, um, as well as a 16th century shoe, which is known as an escaffignon. 
Um, and, and some of you may have seen these before in paintings um, from the 16th century, like paintings of Henry VIII. Absolutely. And then we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years to the 19th century when I first started seeing um, paintings of boys and girls wearing black strapped shoes, something similar to what we would call the Mary Jane today. And this was around the 1840s. Um, and there's a company by the name of S. Waterbury and Son who did this huge promotion for their Mary Janes in the 1940s, and they claimed that they had been making the style for over 80 years. So needless to say, the style of shoe goes back centuries. But April, where did Mary Janes get their name? So that's a really great question, and I think you and I got really excited when we found out this little tidbit of the story, and that is that this name Mary Jane goes all the way back to 1902, when the New York Herald, which is a newspaper here in New York, um, started printing their very popular Buster Brown comic strip, um, which was illustrated by Richard F. Outcult. And the comic began following the misadventures of this troublemaker, whose name was Buster, and his talking American pit bull, whose name was Tig, and his sweetheart, who was named Mary Jane. And Mary Jane was named after Richard's own daughter, and she is the only character from the series said to be drawn from real life. Right. And um, I actually had a lot of fun looking at these comics, and they usually involve this precocious Buster Brown. He's always getting in a lot of trouble. And uh, let's be honest, these comics are very much of their time. So they have many of the era's biases, including racism, sexism, and of course, the anxieties surrounding the traversing of gender roles. But I also find them particularly fascinating because of how much fashion plays a role. Buster's mom is a, a frequent character in the comic strip. She's fashionably dressed. She's a la Gibson girl. And she appears quite frequently in that dramatic, exaggerated S-curve silhouette. Um, we see her petticoats quite a lot um, as he gets in and out of trouble. <laughs> oh my. But one of these comics really stuck out in particular, and it was one in which Buster and his new friend Florence think it'll be fun to exchange clothing. So Florence cuts her hair and she swaps her dress for Buster's tunic. Needless to say, the mothers do not find it amusing at all. Yeah, and, and that comic is particularly notable because of how similar both Florence and Buster's outfits are. They're both wearing white socks with these little black bar shoes, which is a really popular style for both boys and girls, as we've already established, you know, dating all the way back to the 19th century. And, and despite seeing Mary Jane wear the style with some frequency throughout the lifespan of the comic strip, it's really the character of Buster with whom the style of shoes becomes synonymous. The shoes really become part of Buster's signature look. That also included his blonde page boy haircut underneath a flat wide rim hat and a belted collar tunic over shorts or bloomers sometimes. Yeah, and Buster Brown, the comic and the characters became so popular that it wasn't long before Buster Brown boy suits were being marketed across the country. And this was thanks in many ways to the marketing genius of Buster's creator, Richard, who in 1904 traveled to the World Fair in St. Louis, and he sold licenses to Buster Brown to something like over 200 companies. All right. I'm sure Buster Brown products were everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and a pattern advertisement in Kansas's St. Mary's Journal in 1904 said, quote, Buster Brown has become far too familiar a figure to need an introduction. His admirers are many, and it is safe to assume that interest is as general as amusement over his doings. The model shown will be recognized at a glance. And what they're showing in the advertisement are pictures of a, a Buster Brown suit, um, and it's made for anywhere from boys age 
two to six. And of course, he would be wearing that recognizable single strap shoe. So Cass, that begs the question, why aren't these called Buster Browns today instead of Mary Jane? <laughs> and that is a great question. And the answer appears to lie in a 1916 half-page ad that appeared in the St. Louis Post for a huge Buster Brown Gala Day event at a store called Lindell. And there's an ad and it reads, the Lindell store from now on is going to be St. Louis's headquarters for Buster Brown shoes for boys and girls. But Buster April is depicted wearing a style of boot. Ah. And it is the beribboned little girl in the advertisement who wears the single strap patent leather shoe, or as the advertisement lets us know, she is wearing the Mary Jane pumps in patent, which come in patent gunmetal and white nubuck. Yes. So it would appear that changing styles in children's footwear had assigned the single strap shoe to the feminine realm, that is to Mary Jane's universe, not Buster's. And of course, Cass, this reminds both of us, I think, of the pink episode. Absolutely. Yeah. When we talked about how department stores tried to gender pink or blue clothing as being boys or girls or vice versa um, in order to sell more children's clothes because before that, all children or babies were wearing usually white. Exactly. And it is a distinction that really carried across the 20th century. In the 1940s, the shoes surged in popularity and again in the 1960s. But in the case of the latter, it was adult women who adopted the style with great fanfare. Think Twiggy. She's probably the most famous for pairing Mary Janes with brightly colored tights and baby doll mini dresses. But she, of course, was not alone. Yeah, I mean, Mary Janes have been around forever. I mean, sometimes they're slightly more popular than other times. Um, but in 1998, the Independent wrote, quote, Button Your Shoe Girls, the most directional style for autumn winter 1998-1999 is the Mary Jane, this time in a flat, pointy-toed incarnation. So you can see designers all the way from Marc Jacobs to Comme de Garçon at this time putting this Mary Jane style out down the runway. And April, who can forget Sex in the City's A Vogue Idea episode from season four with Carrie's new job as a writer for Vogue and her trip to the Manola Blahnik closet, where she comes face to face with the Mary Janes of her dreams. And she exclaims, <laughs> oh, my God, do you know what these are? Manola Blahnik, Mary Janes. I thought these were an urban shoe mix. <laughs> It's so funny going back and watching the old episodes of Sex and the City because, like, there's, I never noticed it at the time, but it's so full of cliches. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> sometimes they're like cringeworthy. Um, but I've, I, I still like the show. I was so in love with it back in the day. But as we all know today, the Mary Jane is a really common staple in women's footwear. You know, if you type in Mary Jane into the, the shoe website Zappos, you're going to get like, 1500 hits. Oh yeah. Which is which is really crazy. Um and and you can't really help but wonder with with more and more men kind of um transgressing or transcending gender norms in their adoption of skirts and high heels, perhaps Mary Janes will once again become the androgynous style that it originally was. Absolutely. And I have to say, on my recent trip to NYC, I was so happy to see so many men rocking skirts and high heels. It's it's fantastic. It's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at FIT, it's and like more and more and more and more. And it just puts a smile on my face. I love it. I like, I like, my, I like my gentlemen in skirts. It's so cool. Uh, so April... 
do we have any other fashion news to discuss today? Um, I thought there were some interesting tidbits over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, well, I think you were very excited that Tom Ford has now been named the chairman of the CFDA. That's right. He is succeeding Diane von Furstenberg, um, who actually has held the position for 13 years. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about the CFDA? Yeah, yeah. So um, um, if you're not giant fashion nerds or in the industry like Cass and I, uh, the CFDA uh, stands for the Council of Fashion Designers of America. And basically, um, it's the governing body of American fashion, kind of like the Chambre Syndical, one could say, in Paris. Um, They're a trade association. um, And it was originally founded in 1962 by Eleanor Lambert. If you listen to the show a lot, you've heard her name come up many, many, many times. She, of course, was this very influential pioneering publicist um, who really kind of put American fashion on the map. You know, she founded New York Press Week, which is the precursor to Fashion Week. Um, she helped um, found the, what is now the Met Gala. It was called Party of the Year at that time. And um, she also had her, her doings with lots of international best dress lists, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. So one day we might actually do an entire episode on her. Absolutely. She definitely deserves one. So CFDA's mission is to strengthen the impact of American fashion in the global economy. And their membership consists of more than 500 of America's foremost women's wear, men's wear, jewelry, and accessories to designers. Yeah. Um, and one of the cool things that connects to dress is actually the CFDA now owns the fashion calendar. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Ruth Finley's fashion calendar. So the fashion calendar is kind of like a clearinghouse of information so people don't um, schedule their events at the exact same time so everybody's on the same page. Um, and we've actually already done an episode on the fashion calendar where we interview Natalie Nadell, who is working on a documentary film um, about the fashion calendar and Ruth. And I think it's going to be out sometime later this year. Can't wait to see it. And so something else that the CFDA does is they host the annual Fashion Awards. And that was founded in 1981. Um, It's held each June. It honors the best achievement in American fashion design, as well as journalists, style icons. And there's also, of course, a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I thought it might be fun. Um, Tom Ford's appointment kind of gave us a, a chance to talk about the predecessors of CFDA Awards. Um, starting with the Neiman Marcus Award for Distinguished Fashion, which was an annual award created in 1938 by Carrie Marcus Neiman, co-founder of the Neiman Marcus Department Store. Um, That department store was founded in 1907. In Dallas, by the way. Exactly. And the awards um, she created in a collaboration with her nephew, Stanley Marcus. And of course, it should be mentioned that this is 1938. So this is really when American fashion is still... Um, or beginning to really fight to distinguish itself as a center of fashion, a center of uh, creating fashion. So the award for distinguished fashion was awarded to an international roster of fashion makers and shakers, including fashion designers, but also journalists, manufacturers, and celebrities. And this included Scaparelli, Vogue editor Edna Woolman Chase, costume and fashion design legend Adrian. Christian Dior. Oh, and yes, we've heard all of your requests for an Adrian episode, and we will get to it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and one of the last recipients of the award, which ended in 1995, was Miocha Prada. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, And I would say kind of the other big, big, big American fashion award out there was, in the past, um, the Cody American Fashion Critics Award. Once again, Started by Eleanor Lambert. (laughs) And 
I mean, you just can't shake her. She's like, she's everywhere. Unlike the Neiman Marcus Award, though, the Cody Awards um, were created in 1942, and they were focusing exclusively on promoting and celebrating American fashion starting during World War II. And this was a period when American designers, you know, we've talked about this a lot on this show, were kind of cut off from France entirely, and they were kind of really finding their own wings, um, kind of like starting this American design movement. And Lambert created this promotion in conjunction with the cosmetics and perfume company Cody, and they helped promote and uh, produce the awards. And some of the greats who have been awarded the Cody awards include Mamboche, Claire McCardle, Valentina, who we've already done an episode on, Jeffrey Bean, James Galanos, Halston, Oscar De La Renta, Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Betsy Johnson, everybody. <laughs> so basically, um, the Cody Awards um, ended in 1985 um, and were kind of at that point replaced by the CFDA. Yeah, and the CFDA carries on this tradition uh, to this day, and I'm I'm really excited to see what changes might occur under the leadership of Tom Ford. I think April and I can agree that we hope any decisions involve a long-term commitment to reducing waste and promoting sustainability in the industry. Yep, absolutely. So I think that is all for our Fashion History Mystery episode this week. Cass, yes? Yes. Please tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode, and we will talk to you then. All right. See you Tuesday. Tuesday.